Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I'm very happy to be presenting a really important podcast this week. Often we talk about war and peace and global politics, but this week we're going to talk about music, the Eurovision Song Contest electrified the planet with its surprise results. There was a battle of the titans on the run-up to it where bookies were taking enormous bets, mainly from Russians and Ukrainians, about whether one or other of those countries was going to win. And in the event, the competition did not disappoint. There was an enormous fuss about it. Ukraine came out with a striking first position. Australia, not a well-known European country, sneaked in as number two, and the Russians had to make do with their third position in the in the rankings. To discuss the, the meaning of all of these things and many other Eurovision Song Contest-related facts, I have a fantastic group of people. First up is Nicola Klaaser, who is the Swedish ambassador to the United Kingdom. She's also an ECFR council member, has worked for the Swedish Prime Minister as his foreign policy advisor uh, before this. But most importantly for this, I think she's possibly the world's biggest expert on the geopolitics of the Eurovision Song Contest. She's just made a fantastic documentary for the BBC called, was it called The Swedish Ambassador's Guide to the Eurovision Song Contest, which we'll put a link up to on our, on our website. Second up is Frederick Westlau who is the director of ECFR's Wider Europe programme, also Swedish, but uh, is currently talking to us from Brussels about some of the uh, geopolitical features uh, in his part of the world, particularly between Russia and Ukraine. And finally, we have Vesela Chernova, who joined us from Sofia. And what she's talking about is Bulgaria, which emerged as a surprise victor amongst the EU member states, coming fourth in the competition ahead of many countries that were much more favoured, such as Sweden and Ireland, and way ahead of the, the big countries in Europe, like Germany, came sad number 26, I think, in the list, or the country I know best, the UK, which only came 24th. Anyway, uh, we will be covering a lot of ground in this, what happened in this contest, why it matters, and Nicola, later on in the podcast, will also tell us a bit about the hidden history of the European Union, because it wasn't until I listened to her podcast that I understood what an important role this musical contest had played in bringing democracy to Portugal, ending the Soviet Union, and provoking Balkan countries to go to war with each other. But much more on that later on. Should we start with the contest as a whole? It's, uh, it's obviously a lot of fun millions and millions of people watch it every year but why should foreign policy people care about it Nicola? Well I think one has to acknowledge that this is the largest TV entertainment show in the world Uh, it has more than 200 million viewers it is broadcast not only in Europe but in China, uh, now also in the US so the three minutes that you get on stage to actually promote your country are quite essential. And of course, this is very much about soft power. So if you're attractive on stage, obviously you could be perceived as more persuasive. And that's why you see a lot of countries really making a huge effort to win because the ultimate prize is that if you win, you get to host the context next year. That's one of the the features, the the fact that it's a a way of 
showing off your country to the world. It's a bit like maybe hosting an Olympic ceremony or other kind of big events. But this is a little bit more political than some of these sporting events. No, definitely. Uh, it's definitely uh, more political and that you can see also uh, throughout history. A number of times you've seen tunes that have been uh, political. One country in particular that has uh, had a lot of political tunes uh, over the years is Portugal. They never won the competition, though, but you can find many other examples as well. But of course, this year, uh, Ukraine was uh, the example. But there were actually other tunes in the competition that were interesting as well. You had... Uh, Bosnia, Greece, Croatia, uh, with uh, entries that were focusing on the refugee crisis. You had Serbia that had a song about domestic violence. So there were lots of messages uh, uh, this year. So you have looked at every single Eurovision Song Contest since records began and have travelled all over the world in search of uh, stories about the Eurovision Song Contest. What were the things that struck you the most about this year's one? What do you think the top stories were beyond who won? Well, I think what was interesting was the uh, when you looked at the, the voting because the um, the bookies got it wrong this year. They they um, because they didn't think about the the jury votes. They were just looking at the popular vote. Uh, so the popular vote that's where Russia won. But when you added the jury votes and the popular votes together, that's when uh, Ukraine won. And were there any other kind of key votes which you think were were, were particularly interesting? Well, I, th I think it's quite interesting now that one talks about the, the tension between Russia and Ukraine. But you, if you actually look at how they voted, so Ukraine gave Russia 12 points if you added the votes together and Russia gave Ukraine um, uh, 10 points. So so actually the uh, the people seem to uh, to uh, manage, but uh, politicians might be a bit uh, upset. So, Frederick, you spend most of your time looking at the conflict between Russia and Ukraine uh, on the battlefield and, and through the prism of sanctions and uh, the implementation of the Minsk Accord. Um, what do you think about the, the Eurovision Song Contest? Does it matter in terms of the relations between these countries? Well, I mean, what, what's quite remarkable is how much weight um, people in Russia and in Ukraine actually give to, to this competition. And I think... You know, the Russian reaction has been quite remarkable to, to this. You have some very serious people, some, some high-level politicians coming out and sort of blasting the Eurovision and blasting the European Union for, for the, the sort of the result of the fact that, that Ukraine actually won. So it seems like people take it very, very seriously. And I think this is quite remarkable. You know, whether it actually has a, a, any substantial impact on relations or, or the conflict, I, I don't think so really. But it's more um, a symptom of how relations actually are these days. So what have the Kremlin done? I learned from Nicholas' podcast that in 2013, the Kremlin was pretty angry about the, the results, particularly the fact that Azerbaijan didn't give any points to, to Russia and uh, Sergei Lavrov was sent to, to complain about this and Putin himself made a personal intervention on it. Have, have we heard much from the Kremlin since the, the contest? Well, I haven't seen anything from the Kremlin yet, but I have seen, you know, comments from people like uh, Rogozin, for example, who, who tends to be very outspoken, but he's, you know, blasted this. As so a, he's as a, a deputy prime minister. Yes, exactly. He was he was deputy prime minister. I think he's a deputy defense minister now. I mean, he he blasted um, this whole event and and he he threatened to uh, sort of send a um, a Russian pop star to 
um, to to the next uh, Eurovision, who would you know sort of insult everybody there and and just sort of you know basically sabotage the whole event. So you know for for somebody like him of that stature to go out and actually you know express these things, show that he really does care about this, which is which I find quite remarkable. And um, I heard that there are sort of civil society calls for for boycotts of Ukraine over because. Uh, maybe one of you wants to tell us a bit more about the the winning Ukrainian song because it was uh, a little more political than some of the songs which uh, which have done well in it. Yes, maybe maybe Frederick should uh, <laughs> do the interpretation, but obviously it was uh, it was quite a strong uh, message. Um, so Jamala was a Crimean Tatar. Her song was called 1944, and it was uh, it was about. Um, about Stalin's ethnic cleansing of, of Crimea, um, but presumably was slightly aimed at some more recent events, uh, criticising more recent events in Crimea. So the, the Russians were complaining about the song um, initially, but it was then brought to the attention of the European Broadcasting Union and they decided that it was not uh, political because songs in the Eurovision Song Contest are not supposed to have a political message. So uh, the Russian complaint was not adhered to. It has happened before, though, that songs that have had uh, been considered to have too much of a political message have not been allowed to compete uh, or have been asked to change um, the, the name of the song or, or lyrics. And how much of Jamala's victory, do you think, was down to her musical brilliance and how much of it was actually about countries uh, making a point about territorial integrity of Ukraine and the fact that they uh, wanted to to teach the Russians a lesson? Well, I have to say, uh, a really good song always triumphs any uh, voting pattern. And uh, somehow I did notice on the evening, because it's really about the song, the artist, the performance, and she gave an outstanding performance on Saturday. And I could tell because I was at a party where everyone just suddenly went completely quiet when she sang. And you could just see then, wow, this is extremely powerful. And she had tears in her eyes. And it was just everything about the performance that was quite striking. So uh, I wasn't too surprised when she won. Any uh, other things to say on the on this Russian-Ukrainian situation? Project? Yeah, I think one <laughs> one interesting aspect was actually that the the Russian um, singer he um, has actually he actually came out against Russia's uh, illegal annexation of, of Crimea. And he's also been quite outspoken in terms of uh, gay rights as well. And he's come a quarter out. Ukrainian, isn't he? One of his grand, I think his grandmother's Ukrainian. Yeah, I think so. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, there was that added he said that element. Him, Yalta will always be part of Ukraine. He said. Exactly, exactly. Which is which adds another dimension to this whole sort of uh, drama between Russia and Ukraine. Um, I think that was a fairly interesting sort of aspect of this too. No, and I think, uh, I mean, Sergei Lazarev is a very uh, known um, artist in, in Russia, very popular. And I think he, he got... It's the Russian popular. singer, yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. the Russian singer, yeah. Sergei Lazarev. And uh, one could tell that, that his performance was uh, quite appreciated. You could really tell that in, in Stockholm, that he had, uh, he had a really good performance. And I have to add that uh, you had a British songwriter involved in uh, writing uh, the lyrics to his song. So that's good to know. And he had Swedish background uh, dancers. So uh, uh, both our countries were involved in... <laughs> in the near victory by the Russian. <laughs> well, it makes me feel very proud. Um, 
I, I noticed also, I couldn't help noticing that the French singer, who did quite well actually, got almost as many votes as Sweden. They came sixth in the in the Eurovision Song Contest. Did it with a, a song that was half English. What's going on with that? This year, the, so, only, the, only, the only country that sang in French was Austria. Really? To, yes, to make things a bit uh, interesting. Um, um, Austria did not do that well, though, but, uh, but that was quite striking. I, I will say that France seemed to have put a big effort uh, trying to win this year, I, I must say. The, the, um, but half of the scene was in French, though. It was a kind of nice little uh, mix of... Uh, but Austria has sometimes been a superpower, hasn't it? Because they did do very well when Conchita Wurst represented the country. What year was that? That was, uh, <laughs> so obviously it was in, in uh, 2014 that they uh, won with uh, Conchita With the Wurst. bearded lady. But Austria has had some interesting uh, things going for them. Uh, when you had the invasion, uh, the Soviet invasion of the Czechos- Czechoslovakia, they decided to have a, a Czechoslovakian artist sing for them uh, the following year, Karel Gut, who's a very famous artist um, in the region. So so the, many things that have uh, been going on. Hmm. So why don't you tell us a bit more? Because I have to say, I, having listened to your documentary, for me, I'm never going to be able to think about European history in the same way again. I had no idea how important this singing contest was. Do you want to give our listeners a, a few of the kind of key highlights of European history is seen through the prism of the song contest. Yes, well, I think you have to first of all remember that when it, that this all started in 1956, it was supposed to be a friendly battlefield where the love of music would unite countries in Europe. And at the beginning, there were only seven countries. But then throughout the years, so many different things have happened. And I think the the year 1974 is my favourite year, not only because Waterloo was a winning song. It's the year of my birth as well. So yes, and, uh, well. and, and poor, poor, poor France, <laughs> because a president had died. So the funeral was at the same day as the uh, Eurovision Song Contest. So the French contribution was out. <laughs> uh, then you had the uh, Italians. They had a referendum on whether to repeal legislation on uh, being able to divorce. So their contribution had the name C, which is, of course, yes. So they couldn't broadcast their contribution because they were afraid that it would actually affect their referendum on this particular matter. In the end, actually, no side won. Um, but the, the other thing that happened... That Maybe year, if they broadcast it, it would have been uh, Could, been could. Uh, yeah, they were, Ryan was very worried about that. So that's why I didn't, didn't broadcast it for several days. But the most interesting thing that year was that you had the Portuguese contribution... Um, that uh, then started a revolution. So you had this artist that uh, his song uh, was the starting signal to the Portuguese military to start a revolution. And uh, that, to me, is quite striking. That was pretty dramatic. So this, he, it was a song about the, um, about the, the war in Angola, wasn't it? So what was the next big thing then? So that was 1974. When was the next time that Eurovision influenced European history? Well, well, I think in the year of 1990, you had some pretty interesting things going on because there you had, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall. So you had the Norwegian contribution. So it wasn't the contest that that took the wall down? Well, um, (laughs) not exactly, but, you know, but it it sort of did did, uh, play out in the Eurovision Song Contest. And I think the... the, so. uh, so you had uh, the German contribution, Keine Mauern mehr. You had the Norwegians singing about that Brandenburg. That means no Tour. more walls. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, you had the Italian contribution. That was the name uh, Insieme. But it was a love song to the Maastricht Treaty, where sort of it ended with Unite, Unite Europe. And I think Europeans were a bit... You sort think of this contributed back. to the Danish no vote on Maastricht? Hard to tell, but it, was, uh, but it was... Uh, <laughs> 
quite something, I have to say. That year, actually, uh, the UK sang about environmental issues, uh, so it was a bit off topic. Hmm. And what was it? So what happened next then? The, the Yugoslav, you had some good Yugoslav stories. Absolutely. So in 1993, during the Bosnia War, then uh, the Bosnians figured that they had somehow to um, make sure that they could participate in the Eurovision Song Contest. But to get out of Sarajevo under siege was uh, a very risky adventure. But they managed and uh, made it to, uh, to Ireland to compete and got the three minutes on stage and, uh, and sang the song the pain um, of the whole world and it was um, um, it was quite moving and uh, the only problem was that they were very worried when they were on stage and uh, and then afterwards when the voting the votes came in that they couldn't connect with Sarajevo so it took a while and of course people were uh, really really nervous that Sarajevo hadn't been able to pick up the contest uh, but then you know after a while they they got a connection with Sarajevo and so Sarajevo here are our points and that's that's when it was just uh, it was very very moving mm-hmm. and then um, you kind of uh, what so what's the next big story the next big political milestone after Sarajevo oh but there <laughs> there, there have been so so many but uh, the, the one in uh, 95 uh, affected Sweden because we um, uh, had a bit of a problem as we did not award any points to Norway and uh, the problem was that Norway won now do you remember that, was... that Frederick yes I remember this but there's a it, it, it's very relevant today as well and I want to ask Nicola about uh, about the consequences of Norway not voting for Sweden this time around there was a lot of booing in Stockholm <laughs> on Saturday that was a bit shocking will, will there be consequences shocking. for our bilateral relations well I think I'm gonna to have to bring it up with the Norwegian <laughs> ambassador so uh, but uh, no so in 95 it was really uh, quite quite a big to do uh, as Norway won with uh, the song Nocturne and um, our ambassador in Norway, he had to use every skill he had to try to calm things down. So you both, we, in fact, we all know Carl Bildt very well, who's the uh, former prime minister and foreign minister of, of Sweden, but also one of the co-chairs of ECFR. But not many people who know Carl Bildt could guess that he was a big fan of the Eurovision Song Contest. But he also appeared on your documentary. Absolutely. <laughs> no, he's a real fan. And he has this fantastic outfit that he wears. I think he has two outfits, actually, but one is, is fantastic. It's sort of a retro green velvet jacket covered with rats that he wears for these occasions. Fantastic. But he's a real fan. What did you both think about the, the Swedish entry this year? I, I liked it. Um, I well, wasn't sure that it was going to win, um, but uh, I liked the tune. And what, what, what about you? you, did, it make you did it make you proud, Frederick? Yeah, I, I liked it. I thought it was I thought it was quite catchy, but I, I didn't feel it was sort of powerful enough. There, there wasn't enough flair, and, and uh, you know, if you're going to perform in, in in Eurovision, you need to be very ambitious, and there needs to be big lights and fireworks. And uh, and I didn't really feel that you know Sweden's contribution this year covered that. But overall, I think it's a very good song, and I think it will be a very popular song as well this summer. So the other big story about this year's one, and in fact, we might have to ambush our our, uh, our editor, Caterina Botella-Tinaro, who's, uh, who's uh, uh, sitting here and producing the podcast. But she's uh, she's German and she's slightly hanging her head in shame at the fact that, that Germany only came 26th last in the Eurovision Song Contest. How, firstly, maybe you could talk a bit about that, whether there is a kind of national trauma in Germany, because I know that they were big, uh, there's a big, 
national process to select the the winning entry so it wasn't just the broadcaster that was kind of humiliated by this it was in fact the whole default you know the whole german people who who had their uh their entry voted down well yeah they do a big tv show over there they have a few contestants and then people ring up and choose who they want so she was basically elected from the german public to be the contestant for germany um yeah unfortunately I think she was great. I think she was absolutely great. Because I think that the important thing about this contest is that there has to be a lot of fun as well. And I think Germany really showed the outfit she was wearing. So what was her outfit for those people who might have missed this particular feature? She looked a bit like Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) uh, But but it was just just fantastic. uh, Because most of the people nowadays competing, they are quite sort of... uh, try to be, you know, dressed in a very cool way and all that. She was just totally not uh, doing that. So how much do you think, how much of her, her uh, pathetic uh, showing in the poll was to do with geopolitics or the Euro crisis and people want to put Germany in its place then? If, if her outfit was that good, sounds like she should have won <laughs> on the outfit alone. <laughs> it's one thing you have to understand about the Eurovision Song Contest is that you have the big five. So the big five, they make it to the final straight away. That's not a very good thing. Uh, Russia doesn't make it to the final straight away. So who are the big five? The big five, Spain, Italy, uh, Germany, the UK and um, France. So apart from France, they all did pretty badly, the big five. But the thing is that (laughs) if you're going to do well, it serves you much better if you're in the semis because your tune gets played a lot of times. But if you go directly to the final, people don't really know your song. You just suddenly appear. No one has really made taken enough uh, interest in your song so you need to have a much better song than everybody else to do really well so the the big um question which i want to end with is is the is the bulgarian one because bulgaria was the the european union superpower but before we go to that also found out from the british media that the one of the abba stars uh bjorn ulveus had is that the right pronunciation has said that it, it would make him very sad if Britain chose to leave the European Union. How, how much impact do you think that's going to have on our referendum result? Do you think that um, this well, could swing it? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sad to say that I, I'm not sure that it will have any decisive impact. But I rather like the name of the UK song, You're Not Alone, and referring to so You're Not Alone, We're In This Together. I thought that was quite sweet. Okay, well, well, we'll see what happens on the 24th of June. We can come back and see if the Eurovision Song Contests can claim yet another political victory in, in next year's documentary when you make it. You can talk about how Eurovision won the Brexit vote. So all in all, it's a pretty miserable evening for the European Union. There are no European Union members who are represented in the top three. But there was one country that did celebrate the Eurovision Song Contest, and it wasn't Ireland or Sweden, as it has often been in previous years. It was Bulgaria. And very happy to be joined from Sofia by Vesla Cheneva, who's the director of programmes at ECFR, but also the head of our Sofia office. Um, tell us about the, the mood in Sofia after the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, well, uh, funny enough... Um Poli Genova, the uh, singer who p- represented Bulgaria and came forth uh, at the Eurovision Song Contest, she herself uh, was very proud to announce that she brought the highest score within the EU. So, uh, obviously, that spin uh, was there. 
you know, the mood was uh, was uh, very good because people were very enthusiastic about Bulgaria coming forth. Uh, obviously, the first three uh, were um, part of a different game, uh, a geopolitical game maybe, but also Australia had put a lot of effort in advertising the country and uh, was hoping actually to even win the contest. So Bulgaria, in a way, was a surprise. Uh, but people were happy because uh, this girl, she uh, seemed to to have done it with her talent. And for the first time, Bulgarian song was produced together with composers, three different composers. Only one of them is Bulgarian. Uh, two, two others uh, are, I think, a Swede and, uh, and maybe a, a Maltese. Um, with a Swedish choreographer, a Bulgarian designer, so it was a very international crew. Sounds like and it was a real victory for the European Union. Then. In, in a way, <laughs> it was a very European production, yes. Um, the song is also uh, performed, most of it in English, but the chorus uh, uh, says, Daimi Lubovta, give me the love. And uh, everybody who has watched it, in a way, remembers Daimi Dubovta. This is the, the Bulgarian phrase that became known and, and became remembered. So you think it was a question of raw talent? Because another way of looking at it, because we're talking possibly about Bulgaria getting the job of the next Secretary General of the United Nations. And one of the reasons for that is that Bulgaria is a member of the West is kind of not mistrusted or hated by, by Western countries. But at the same time, uh, it's also not seen as as threatening to Russia as uh, some other countries were and has this sort of Tito-like ability to face East and West, which is serving it well geopolitically. Was that part of the, the Bulgarian solution here as well in the Eurovision Song Contest? In a way, yes. Um, some of the... Some of the Slavs, let's say, the Slavic nations voting, of course, could identify with that, uh, with that one verse uh, because it was understandable for most of them. But, you know, oh, the, it's curious also whom the Bulgarians vote, voted for uh, that night. And it turns out that they gave 12 points uh, to Russia while Russia gave zero points to Bulgaria. Uh, so this is also being commented very widely here that while we seem to be uh, really trying to be both uh, facing East and West, um, our big Eastern neighbor is not doing this anymore. Wow. So it's another tale of unrequited Bulgarian love for, for Moscow. How many votes did you give to, sorry, not you, obviously, but your, the, the Bulgarians, how many did they give to Ukraine? I think Ukraine was second with 10 points. And was th is this causing massive um, uh, backlash against Moscow in, in, uh, in Bulgaria, the fact that you got nul point from the Russians? <laughs> in, in some way, this was, uh, this was kind of the uh, sobering experience of, last, of, of, that, uh, of that night. It is also um, remarkable because many people do see this as a kind of uh, a geopolitical game, even as a conspiracy uh, of a kind. So the, the, this is why this fourth place of Polygenova is also internally significant, because it proves not only that talent, but also that talent with European professionalism uh, 
work together, and uh, um, and this was, of course, very refreshing. So, what lessons do you think the uh, the big losers of the night, like Sweden, Ireland, the the UK, Germany? I think they came last. <laughs> what could they take from Bulgaria? Those countries, probably some of them, uh, like like Germany and others, they probably don't put that much value to to this. Uh, it's uh, it's the show place for small countries who can um, who can march uh, in in the face of uh, 200 million people watching them um, and this is of course a glorious moment for them or also for uh, for countries like Russia who want to 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 win a testimony for them being an actor an important actor uh, but I suppose uh, you know, uh, countries that don't, don't take it that seriously, and I will take Sweden out of this because Swedes take it obviously very seriously. As does Ireland. <laughs> and the Irish. But for, for most of the others, uh, it's, uh, it's a, a show for not for the general public. Uh, and this is uh, the difference between uh, the smalls and the big ones. Okay. Well, that's a, it's a nice uh, uplifting moment for Europe on which to end. We will put up links to all of the winning entries in the Eurovision Song Contest, particularly to the, the Bulgarian entry. That will be at the top of our of our list. But then after that, we'll have some more minor countries like Ukraine and Russia that might have done uh, even better in numerical terms uh, on our website, which is at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do Post it on your Facebook page. Tweet about it. Leave us a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud. And write to me with comments at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Vesela Chernova in Sofia and Nicola Klasa in London and Frederick Reslau in Brussels and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of our podcast is Katarina Botella Tinaro. Our researcher is Ulrika Franco. 